Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. We live in a world of rapid global innovation and urbanization, and how we move from place to place is at the heart of it. From debates over walkable spaces in cities to the fight over Uber and forecasts about smart cities and automated vehicles, techno-utopianism often clashes with older and often more traditional ways of doing things in cities. With me today to try and make sense of it all is Nathaniel Horadan, a budding city planner and an, ex- an expert in these issues. Nathaniel, welcome. Thank you, Avi. Great to be here. So let me start with uh, a question I often ask my guests. How did you get into something like city planning? It sounds like a fairly technical and fairly dry sort of subject and an incredibly complex one. Yeah, and to be honest with you, I mean, so right now I'm, I'm technically not a city planner. Uh, I did go to graduate school for that. And, and honestly, it's something that I didn't even really know existed. Uh, until about 2015, several years into my professional career, uh, simply because, um, yeah, I'd always been focused on foreign policy. But as I started to, uh, you know, live in a community that I felt uh, I had an attachment to, um, you know, in, in this case, Atlanta and specifically Midtown Atlanta and started to think about a lot of the problems in the physical world around me, um, particularly around infrastructure. Uh, I started to think about potential business ideas, uh, which I, I scuttled and, and ultimately decided that the topic interested me enough that I wanted to go back to graduate school for it. Fair enough. Um, So let me start with a question that's been vexing me for a while as an amateur interested in city issues. When I uh, went to university and we focused on Israeli history and among other things we covered the ancient period, we came up with at least 12 different possible criteria for what constitutes a city. Uh, And I imagine that in the modern era it becomes even more complicated. So let me ask you, instead of asking you what constitutes a city, Do we even need such criteria? Um, And if they are, what are they? Uh, That's a a big question there. Uh, So I I wouldn't say you need criteria. I mean, you have have a lot of urban planning literature that emerged uh, in the late 80s, early 90s that started to think about how you define the modern city. as it relates to its essentially its metropolitan area. So you've, you've got this central business district and then as you go out further and further, you kind of end up with these edge cities, which there are definitions for this based on population and, and uh, jobs density. Uh, and then you end up going further out and you end up with these edgeless cities that have lots and lots of people, but don't really have uh, anything of a core to speak of. So, you know, folks kind of play with those definitions. There's actually, you know, good, robust academic debate as to, uh, you know, do you, do you need to try and densify those, those outer areas? Um, 
you know, should we continue to use kind of past definitions? But um, I don't know. I mean, really, really, it does come down to to density, um, jobs and and population, residential, I should say. Um, when I speak of population, uh, and I, and I think I think it is an important way of looking at the world because it it ultimately determines uh, how well you can provision services, how effective your transportation networks can be. Um, can you start to institute things like high capacity transit? You need a good bit of density for that. And ultimately, you know, kind of on a more, um, you know, economic development perspective, for, from an economic development perspective, uh, you know, is it the kind of place that will attract jobs? Because ultimately, uh, you want a degree of density, uh, and particularly as um, you know, as, as Generation X and, and millennials and you know Gen Z, um, you know, starts growing up and, and joining the workforce and finds their own place to live, um, places to live. Uh, they're starting to prioritize. I mean, they're already prioritizing these places, and, and will continue to do so. That's not to say they'll only live in those places. Uh, they clearly kind of follow the same trajectory as prior generations moving out to the suburbs when they need kids. But ultimately, uh, I think these these definitions are are somewhat important for understanding, um, you, you know, what what exactly makes an attractive place. Awesome. So density sounds like a fairly uh, good definition. And like you said, it's hard to find, draw a hard line, but that sounds like a fairly good place to start from. Uh, I should note, again, as an amateur, not as an expert, uh, that I've been following, among other things, uh, the Atlantic's City Lab. And I often get the feeling that when people discuss urbanism, they discuss urbanism from a very uh, high aesthetic um, some snide people might say upper middle class perspective. And while on the one hand, I understand it. I, I love walkable spaces. I love beautiful buildings. On the other hand, as a guy who lives in the city, uh, in a city like yourself, um, for me, and I'm sure for a lot of other residents, their needs tend to be much more practical, uh, in terms of living amenities and so forth. How do you, how, what, Good examples have you found that try and balance those two issues? To balance the need for a city to, I guess, be beautiful and to and to have uh, a sort of a character, while on the other hand, also being useful. Uh, okay, I understand now. So, uh, and, and there's actually, there's a f story fairly recently talking about how um, you know, beautiful cities. I mean, aesthetically beautiful cities tend to be more attractive places for, um, you know, for, um, you know, migration for, for, you know, folks moving for, for migrants moving to and from cities. And I, I, I kind of hesitate using the word migrant today, given uh, broader political context, but, um, I mean, that's, that's in the strictest sense of the word, what it is. Um, I mean, look, you've got plenty of old European cities with beautiful uh, urban cores that have buildings going back, uh, some some cases centuries, um, that don't allow for, you know, incredibly high density development and 
honestly, right now, they probably don't need super high density development because most of these populations are uh, stagnant or shrinking, um, you know, even with the uh, recent migrant, uh, you know, the migrant crisis in, in Europe. Um, in the United States, yeah, you have this, this big, uh, this kind of um, uh, conflict between historic preservation, um, to, to your point, the aesthetically pleasing, um, you know, the, the aim to make cities aesthetically pleasing versus upzone everything, more density, more density, more density. Uh, it doesn't matter if you have beautiful cities, if people can't afford to live in them. And so we need, you know, 20, 30, 40 story residential towers, and we need high concentrations of jobs. And this goes back to my point from just a moment ago uh, on, on, the, on your previous question. Um, you know, you want more jobs, you want more, more resident, uh, you know, more residential capacity, because ultimately, you know, that provides a more vibrant, um, you know, a more a vibrant uh, culture, um, you know, more stores or shops, uh, you, you can provide for much higher capacity transit options. It's easier for people to move around uh, on their time uh, with, with greater, um, you know, frequency of those transit options. So, I, I mean, personally, I, I am conflicted. I love the old world, um, but also, you know, you go to places like Tokyo um, and, and other major cities in East Asia and you just, you know, it, it's, it's marvelous. I mean, it's truly spectacular to see just how many people they can pack into these areas. It's somewhat claustrophobic if I'm being completely honest, but, um, you know, I, I can see both sides of that argument. And here in the United States, you really only have a few cities where we've allowed that sort of density to develop and probably will never allow it on the scale of what we do see in East Asia or South Asia for that matter. Fair enough. Uh, I'm guessing that this is a debate that will probably go on forever. Uh, while we're on the subject, though, of uh, old and new, let's dive straight uh, straight into the uh, issue at hand. Uh, before we discuss the question of present and future development of transportation, uh, I noticed that you spent quite a bit of time also studying the past of transportation. And I wonder if you could give me uh, and our audience, I guess, something of a very brief crash course into how people used to get around uh, until around today. So it's really interesting today where you've seen really with the rise of, you know, information technology and cellular networks and uh, the internet where communication is effectively instantaneous, breaking down physical barriers, uh, reducing the need to travel so much and so quickly, where the concept of mobility has been kind of redefined from what you would think of in past contexts. It's been redefined to basically mean, you know, your ability to get where you need to go or, um, you know, communicate with whomever you need to communicate with. Um, in a frictionless, most efficient manner. Uh, if you go back, you know, 200 years, the fastest anyone could travel was either by boat or on land by horse. And the fastest you could send a message was by carrier pigeon. 
So obviously with the invention of mechanical power or really steam power, um, both, both by, you know, by waterways with, um, the steamboat and then also with, uh, you know, on rail with the train that started to change all of that. And you started to see, you know, population, um, uh, uh, settlement patterns and, and population density shift with those innovations. So all of a sudden, you know, with the advent of the railroad, you had railroad towns pop up and you had enormous competition over who would get the railroad coming through their city or their town. And they would start to build all these amenities. It's very similar to the economic development game today where, where people are looking for things to differentiate themselves um, amongst other peer cities uh, in terms of, you know, having the, the well, I, I, actually, I won't, I won't get into that just yet. We, we may get, we may go there in a minute, but, uh, you had this big, uh, essentially arms race for services. You wanted the courthouse in your city. You wanted the schools in your city. You wanted people to come to your town center. So the railroad would come through it. And so, you know, you started to see development patterns um, shift along those lines. Uh, trains got faster, trains got safer, and it allowed us to, you know, spread over the entire continental U.S. Uh, and then you started to have telecommunications technology emerge alongside it with the telegraph. Telegraph lines were typically run along railroads, and so you always had this close connection between um, communications and you know, physical mobility. And then the next generation of that came at the end of the century with the advent of the telephone uh, and the spread of those networks, first starting in dense urban areas and, and eventually spreading to uh, rural or more sparsely populated areas. Uh, and then alongside that on the physical side of things, um, the automobile. And with that came, you know, not just not just cars, but also, um, you know, internal combustion engine powered buses and, and other vehicles. So, uh, and that also began to shift development patterns in a new way. Um, and as we started to build road infrastructure to support those things, um, actually roads tip, uh, originally came from bicycles, bicycle advocates were the first ones pushing for, for better road infrastructure. Uh, you started to see this evolution and it's what ultimately enabled um, over several more decades, uh, suburban sprawl and this, you know, modern dependency on automobility. Um, and so that kind of brings us today, which is some people will say the third or fourth revolution in, in mobility, where you're seeing the complete blending of telecommunications technology and physical mobility. Uh, it, it's never been quite like that before, but those prior eras really do offer a lot of useful parallels, um, even if you know it's not exactly the same. There, there is a rhyme there. Okay, so before we get specifically to that issue, uh, let me ask you, because again, I see this a lot uh, in the literature, um, there's a war between people who love cars and their and people who think that cars are absolutely awful, especially for cities. Um, where do you fall on that debate? 
And there was a big New York Times story on, sorry, New Yorker story on this uh, just last month saying was the automobile a mistake or, or something to that effect. Ultimately, look, I, cars were a great solution at the time of their advent. They helped people get out of cities which were nasty, industrializing places. The amount of horse manure uh, and other foul, disease-inducing, um, you know, filth, you know, sewage, um, and then obviously industrial smog that polluted these urban cores made the automobile, uh, you know, an almost an instant hit. Uh, it was invented, you know, sometime in the 1880s. I, I can't remember the exact date. And within 20 years, uh, you really saw it take off. And, you know, within 10 to 20 years after that, it was ubiquitous. And it completely taken over transportation systems, was starting to erode the advantage of, um, you know, urban rail systems, streetcars, and whatnot. And, and what's interesting to me, uh, you know, looking at this kind of from an agnostic historical perspective is if, if we don't have the automobile, if we don't build up this enormous manufacturing capacity around it, which we never would have done with any sort of other form of mobility, not with trains, not with streetcars, not with buses, um, and, and certainly not with bicycles. This, this huge industrial manufacturing capacity that ultimately helped the United States win World War II. I mean, the arsenal of democracy, we completely turned over all of that automobile manufacturing capacity uh, to, to build, you know, tanks and boats and, and you know, other armaments uh, that, helped us win, that helped us win that war. Um, and it's also provided us, you know, got millions and millions of jobs in the, you know, in the, uh, you know, in the uh, Rust Belt and, and now the South over the last, you know, 80 to 100 years. So yeah, I get, and, I, and I'm one of those people that, you know, wants to uh, erode the advantage that cars currently have in our cities uh, at every turn possible, but it's also tough for me not to appreciate all the other benefits economic benefits uh, that they have produced and also military benefits that they have produced for the United States, uh, you know, in, in the past century. So, you know, it's, t to me, it's almost, it's more, I appreciate what they've done. Their time has come and gone and we need to be looking for ways to reduce our dependence on them for, for health reasons, for environmental reasons, um, and, and for economic reasons, to be frank. Okay, that's a great segue into our topic because uh, one of the things which uh, companies like Uber and Lyft and especially people who promise to create smart cities, smart transportation networks, and even uh, automated vehicles are effectively promising to alleviate a substantial amount of that burden in the sense of relieving people of the need to worry about owning their own car, about having a parking space, uh, about getting around, uh, about worrying about insurance or even getting into accidents. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the reception of these companies has been quite mixed. Uh, they have led to quite a few strikes and protests. And I've noticed that you yourself 
uh, have pushed back pretty hard against some of the, I guess you'd call it the overselling uh, of these technological solutions as though they were uh, instant panaceas for urban transport issues. Uh, so could you perhaps describe, were you always this agnostic and perhaps sometimes uh, hostile to this overpromising, or you were like an early believer who was disillusioned? So that's, that's a great question. And there, there has been a degree of evolution for me. And I, and I just want to preface by saying that I am not a long-term skeptic in the technology. I think that it will develop uh, over a long time frame and produce a lot of benefits. Um, this is specifically automated vehicle technology. Some of these other things like ride hailing, um, you know, Uber, Ubers and Lyfts, I'm, I'm a little more mixed on the long-term prognosis for them. But when I actually got into city planning, I had been an IT consultant um, at a major management consulting firm and had been working on federal programs, uh, U.S. government programs, uh, building out this IT infrastructure where I saw a natural segue between those, you know, very expensive, um, highly sensitive security systems uh, to what I thought was going to be a, a similar need uh, for what we call connected vehicles, which have kind of been blended in terminology uh, with automated vehicles where you know, essentially the, the cars are connected to some sort of network and they represent a, a cyber threat because if somebody is able to penetrate that system, they can hijack control of it. Or honestly, the more, you know, realistic threat is that they just, you know, take a lot of data um, from the riders. But, but no, so I, I entered the space thinking about that and that we would need a similar approach to large cybersecurity architectures with a lot of public support for that to ensure the security of these systems. But ultimately, I... I, I was very optimistic uh, when I first entered. I bought into a lot of the not so much academic literature, but industry white papers and um, you know industry promises and the most optimistic deployment timelines from the developers themselves. And watching that development over the past now four years uh, has. Uh, ingrained a, a deep sense of skepticism, but but really more realism in terms of what's feasible in the short term. It's also made me sensitive and and more aware to the way that uh, the promises of these technologies, the, the way that they have been used to justify not making other pragmatic short term decisions. Uh, that could have a fairly substantial impact on our transportation system. So, for instance, if you believe that we don't need to invest in public transit infrastructure because within the next five to ten years, everyone's going to have a self-driving Tesla and traffic won't be a bother anymore uh, and that all the road networks will be optimized because all the cars will communicate with each other and the traffic signals and may maybe you don't even need traffic signals that, uh, you know, all, all that stuff works so well that we don't need to invest in the fundamentals. 
and and I think that's shaping a lot of the conversation in particularly suburban and exurban, you know, even further out communities that are starting to warm up. We're, we're starting to warm up to uh, public transit investment because they're more averse to taxation and they see this as a way for the private sector to deliver you know, enormous benefits without having to really give up anything themselves. So that's more of where my skepticism comes from. It's, it's really not a matter of the end outcome. It's more about how we get there and the decisions that we will make along the way that will have an enormous impact on um, the development patterns of our cities. Okay, uh, if I may ask uh, before uh, we follow up on that, uh, you noted that when it comes to Uber and Lyft, your views are more mixed. Could you please elaborate on that? So from the very beginning, Uber and Lyft have promised that, um, well, promise from the very beginning is a strong word. Basically, they, they came in knowing that everybody hated their taxi cab systems in whatever city they lived in. Uh, they were too short in supply in New York. It was that not, not enough medallions had been handed out in some other cities with medallion systems. It was a similar, similar problem. And they were able to use that frustration to their political benefit. And they were offering huge bonuses to drivers as they scaled up. They were able to say, and they were able to mobilize those drivers, um, you know, in their favor before city council, before state legislators saying that, the, you know, that they create jobs and they provide economic opportunity, even as those benefits, you know, even as those big bonuses and the large rates kept coming down um, and the company's take of those fares continued to go up, depriving, depriving the, um, the drivers of of more of their wages or, or more of their take-home income. Uh, even as all that happened, uh, you know, most drivers still thought that this provided economic opportunities for them. And in some cases, for some people it does, but they were able to, the bottom line is Uber and Lyft were able to, to use all these things for political advantage and steamroll regulations. And they did so saying that they integrate with transit, they're not competing with transit, that they are pushing people toward shared rides. So the idea that rather than having a single person in an Uber, that uh, they are pushing people toward their shared options like Uber Pool or Lyft Line, where they will match riders with one or two or possibly three other riders who are more or less coming from the same place and going in the same direction, uh, you know, creating efficiencies. The problem is none of that really scales all that well. Uh, even with all the data that these companies have, and, and to be frank with you, most of their employees come from either computer science or management consulting backgrounds, not transportation. So they think of you know, urban streets as you know, like routing packets through a network or you know, routing a phone call through um, you know, a, a series of utility cables. Um, and, and the management consultants look at these problems on paper and, you know, look at them as simple economics problems, not realizing that 
time and space and transportation or an urban context, broadly speaking, are just completely unlike anything else, any other problem in economics. Being able to match riders coming from one direction, going to another direction at roughly the same time and, you know, not making them wait um, because there's a, there's a limited tolerance for that. And then on top of that, doing that in a competitive environment where if your competitor can deliver on that better than you can, um, then they'll get the business or they, they'll, they'll get those fares. So, um, the incentives for these companies aren't necessarily to push everyone to shared options. It's in some cases to do that where you have the highest density in places like New York, places like San Francisco, um, places like Chicago, which by the way, already have the best transit networks in the country because they have that density to support lots of trains and, and high capacity bus routes and, and dedicated lanes for those buses. Uh, and those services tend not to work so well in places where transit already doesn't work so well in the suburbs or in kind of the far-flung neighborhoods of uh, lower-density cities like Atlanta or Dallas, um, you know, a lot of your Sunbelt metros. So the, the, the problem is that these things don't scale all that well, even though they've been promised they would. And that they're undercutting transit services, yes, providing better service, and in some cases actually providing better accessibility for uh, people with disabilities, you know, who have uh, ADA requirements uh, for their transportation. But in the grand scheme of things, they're just not really a solution in all that many places. And they've been promoted as being so much more than that. And even automation won't fix that problem, that inherent mismatch between, um, you know, b between demand from, from one place to get to another with enough critical mass to make it work. So uh, it sounds, at least from what you're saying, that a big part of the problem, uh, I remember uh, a fellow I follow named uh, Lyman Stone who talked about how cities are so incredibly complex, they're practically like Hayekian laboratories. So it sounds like cities differ from one another and there's no really one size fits all solution that you can just, you know, like you said, create in a lab and just impose on every single one. Um, so let's take the Sunbelt metros as an example. I hereby appoint you emperor for life for one Sunbelt metro. How do you solve to a to as reasonable degree as possible the transport issues uh, in that city or hell even in your own city of Atlanta? Well, the question is, uh, and, and before I before I go any further, the question is, do I have to face political resistance, local political resistance, to any of these changes? Let's assume you do. So you end up with challenges there, eliminating things like, you know, what, what we call exclusionary zoning, basically limiting uses to, um, you know, higher basically excluding higher density development in a lot of neighborhoods because ultimately single family development patterns in single family housing development patterns in 
uh, wealthier parts of the city are, are part of the problem. But really the, the two solutions are better land use and better access to transportation because ultimately, and, and those two things go hand in hand, um, where right now, uh, let me step back a second. The, the issue with, so the, the issue is land use primarily, that you've got exclusionary zoning in a lot of neighborhoods that are lower density development, that they only allow you know, detached single family homes, they don't allow apartment buildings uh, because those things are seen as undesirable. They uh, either increase pressures on public schools and the most desirable neighborhoods or they bring in quote-unquote undesirable elements, which is typically code for minorities. Um, and these are predominantly white and increasingly Asian neighborhoods uh, that are blocking these types of developments, particularly in northern suburbs of the city. And, and I'm speaking you know, about Atlanta here. Uh, so I would upzone everything. I would eliminate single-family zoning. I would say that maybe you don't Maybe you don't get to build skyscrapers everywhere, but in the densest, you know, in that central business district, in those densest areas, for us, it's downtown, midtown, Buckhead. Uh, if you look at a skyline of the city, you see kind of this spine go up Peachtree Street from downtown up through Buckhead. Uh, I, I would eliminate any sort of height restrictions along that corridor. And what you end up starting to do is you create enough demand for more high, more frequent, higher capacity transit options. You already have rail serving that that corridor, but now you can more easily justify doing things like dedicating an entire lane of the road in each direction to buses. And you're gonna have a lot of political resistance to that. Um, that's, I mean, that's just inevitable, though I'm hoping over time as the boomers depart from the scene and millennials and Gen Xers and Gen Zers uh, coming down the pipeline who uh, place a great greater priority on building out transit infrastructure um, will start to whittle away that political resistance. And once you have dedicated infrastructure, dedicated lanes for buses, and you can start running them at consistently 10 minute headways, meaning 10 minutes between each bus on a regular schedule without having to sit in traffic, it completely changes the entire fabric of your transportation system. So, you know, that's just one example, one corridor, but there are probably a dozen corridors throughout the city where you can do similar, similar things. Upzone, you know, eliminate uh, low density development, and create dedicated infrastructure for transit, and at the same time create dedicated infrastructure or shared infrastructure with the, those transit assets for for bicycles, scooters, um, you know, anything that's that's not an automobile. And, and I think those two things right there, land use and, and then that dedicated infrastructure, um, would, would create a sea change. And and you know, ultimately, that's not fixing the suburbs but it's fixing the part of the city that generates the most traffic, the most congestion, has the most economic activity, uh, and ultimately 
has more people commuting into it from anywhere else in the city, uh, from anywhere else in the region, I should say. Um, just as a side note, uh, so you mentioned Uber and Lyft uh, doesn't scale all that well, and you're mentioning uh, the upzoning and the uh, traffic lines, which sound uh, very good. Um, but there's an industry in the middle. It's called the taxi industry. The question is, uh, people on the right often speak very highly of doing everything possible to uh, reduce the prices of medallions or perhaps get rid of them altogether. Uh, do you think that a if that's a good thing or not, and B, whether that would make a significant contribution to transportation or not. So, uh, yes and no. I mean, you, you do need to have a more demand-flexible medallion system or credentialing system, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think you still need to have some sort of restriction on supply of vehicles at the end of the day, though simply because ultimately the people who drive taxi cabs are not the most financially literate individuals. Same thing with Uber and Lyft drivers. They don't really understand, and some do, but, but most don't, uh, essentially what net income is. So what their deduction, you know, their, they understand gross income, they don't understand net income, so they don't understand that they have to depreciate their vehicles, they know gas costs, but they don't really take into account oil or other maintenance or really the amount of time that they spend, you know, not taking, uh, not taking riders. So what ends up happening is you end up with a glut of, you know, an oversupply of drivers in a, in a fully competitive libertarian utopia type system. And I think you do need some sort of labor protection for those drivers uh, because, you know, they're competing against each other. They think that maybe they can outgame the system or, um, you know, profit when others can't, but, um, or, or make enough income, bring in enough income that, um, you know, they, they can live sustainable lifestyles without, um, you know, without going broke trying to, you know, to drive, which is kind of what you see in the Bay Area, people living in their vehicles because uh, they can't afford rents. They're driving in from two hours outside the city because in downtown San Francisco, we're doing airport rides from SF, you know, from, from San Francisco International Airport are the only ways that they can generate enough revenue um, to sustain their lives. And, th you know, that's two hours of gas that they're paying for, even if they get fuel efficient vehicles or go electric. It's, it's still a, an incredibly high cost for them to bear. So, yes, I do think you need some sort of medallion system. Also, um, you know, congestion being a problem. You end up with too many vehicles on the roads. Everybody's mobility goes down. You may be able to get a car, you may be able to get a, uh, an Uber or a Lyft or a taxi, um, you know, more, uh, uh, more readily. Uh, and faster, but it's going to take you longer to get where you need to go. So, um, you know, really it's, it's partly mobility, but, but mostly a, a labor protection issue. I, I don't want to see thousands of people or 
honestly, tens of thousands of people nationally go broke because, you know, they're, they're being gamed by Silicon Valley overlords that really don't, really don't care about them one way or another. Interesting. So that's a great uh, segue into uh, my final question. Um, a lot of what you discussed so far uh, is very pragmatic, very universal, and dare I say, almost entirely politics neutral. Um, whereas I and other people have been interested in the question of what does it mean to have a conservative approach to a city while people on the other side think, well, what does it mean to have a progressive approach to the city? Um, and I was curious as someone who's getting into, again, what sounds like a very uh, uh, technical, if necessary, field, um, what do you think either side can bring to a city and city life, um, economics-wise, culture-wise, politics-wise? So the most uh, most fascinating dynamic in urban politics today is the fact that everyone's a Democrat, basically. Everyone is a self-styled liberal or and or progressive um, for the most part. You have a you have a handful of exceptions, uh, and and Republicans have basically and for the most part conservatives have seated the cities as really any place of interest. So you end up with different fault lines that are not that do not follow the national political divisions, and, and I'll use the Atlanta uh, mayoral election in 2017 as an example. You basically had three segments of the city, three different constituencies: North Atlanta, East Atlanta, South Atlanta. North Atlanta predominantly white predominantly older white, uh, older money, and uh, most of the, um, you know, corporate, corporate headquarters, um, you know, old time professional services type folks. East Atlanta being rapidly gentrifying neighborhoods, a lot younger, um, much more focused on transportation and education, not so much on crime and potholes, which is kind of what North Atlanta's uh, thing was, and also protect. You know, North Atlanta was also very much kind of um, not anti-development, but you know, very NIMBY. Uh, not in my backyard. They don't want higher density development in their neighborhoods. Kind of what I was explaining earlier, and then South Atlanta being predominantly black. And that kind of cuts along uh, low income as well as high income areas. But you ended up with, you know, very, very different. Um, and, and everyone's calling themselves progressive at the end of the day or liberal at the end of the day. The city is 80 plus percent Democrat. So, you know, ultimately, these fault lines that emerged were not the sort of debates that you would see on a national scale. I mean, we're not talking about gun control. We're not talking about access to health care. We're talking about things like, you know, should, you know, should we build more affordable housing? Should the city get behind uh, large-scale infrastructure investment? 
Um, should we rezone certain areas? Um, you know, should we police differently? Things, I mean, certain national issues, obviously policing being one of them, uh, you know, were, were prominent as well as uh, like marijuana legalization. But for the most part, um, you end up with entirely different coalitions. And, you know, again, conservatives are kind of out of the picture entirely. So, you know, really, I don't even know where conservatives start if they try to get into city politics. You do have people like Lyman Stone and people like Matt Lewis and Jasana Weissman who talk about these issues a lot, that talk about um, criminal justice reform, talk about uh, licensing reform, deregulation of certain industries. A lot of times I find them, myself at odds with them on particularly, you know, the ride hailing industry, but that's just because I think transportation is a completely different issue than, than most other, uh, most other highly regulated industries. But yeah, I mean, I, I just don't know. I mean, ultimately what conservative politics would look like in an urban environment, it'd be night and day from what you would see in, you know, in the rural areas or, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, federal economic policies. So I guess if, if, you, if you forced, you know, if, if you forced me to, you know, to come up with a doctrine, I would say it would be a, a liberalization, you know, in the, in the classical sense, a liberalization um, of a lot of highly regulated industries, um, lower taxes, uh, more economic development incentives, which you already in places like Atlanta have, uh, it, it's kind of our, um, you know, it, it's kind of our bread and butter, uh, huge economic development incentives. Um, but I mean, a lot of it would be finding alignment with, with Democrats and progressives in places where the national parties are entirely at odds, but some younger conservatives find themselves aligning with progressives already on national issues. Okay, so that sounds like a, a, a good start, a good foot in the door. Nathaniel, thank you very much for coming on. I've learned a great deal. Thank you, Avi. It's great to be with you here.